Hello everyone, welcome back to the Stay Current Podcast. I'm Cecilia Higena from Cincinnati Children's Hospital and along with Stay Current, we are sharing knowledge to improve child health around the globe. Today, we have another episode of the Intestinal Rehabilitation Podcast and as always, we have Dr. Paul Whale, the current director of the Intestinal Rehabilitation Program at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I'm Paul Wales. I'm a pediatric surgeon here at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And Dr. Michael Helmrath, the prior director of the Intestinal Rehabilitation Program. I'm Michael Helmrath. I'm a pediatric surgeon, also doing intestinal failure surgery and research here at Cincinnati Children's. So, Today we are talking about how to refeed a neonatal patient with intestinal failure. So let's start. Even if a kid has a complicated disease process, one of our goals as a team is to try to establish the most normal feeding habits we can that not only promote gut function and everything else, but also to optimize quality of life and the importance of the social aspects of eating that we all experience with our families and friends. True. We should know that brief feeding is not only for intestinal function, but also has social aspects. There's a lot of things that you have to consider when you go to that, which includes poor gastric emptying, poor gastric function, high stoma outputs versus high stooling output, and the age of the child and where the child was enterally at the time of intestinal damage. Okay, so we have a lot to cover today. And again, we are talking only about neonatal patients in this case. If you want to talk about older patients, don't miss out in our next episode of the Intestinal Rehabilitation Podcast. So to start, we have a patient with intestinal failure or short bowel syndrome with a high output stoma. Should we start feeding or not? With the concept that you go up and enteral feeds, because as you do, you actually drive fluid losses. Yeah, there's often a fear on initiating feeds because of the higher stoma losses. When men start to feed and the losses get higher, and there's a reluctance to push forward, but you have to. And if you're in a hospital setting, you've got the ability to replace that volume. Yeah. Remember that, especially if there's been damaged bowel, it's going to be in a secretory phase, even if it's not fed. And people are scared then to feed and feeling like it's going to be totally uncontrollable. Whereas what happens is the exact opposite. As you start to feed, the bowel then gets in an absorptive state because the nutrition that's present in the lumen will stimulate it to do so. And you'll actually start to see less volume out the stoma in time. Okay, so let's highlight this important concept. A damaged bowel will be in a secretory phase at first, creating high stomas output. Feeding it will eventually help with the healing and change the secretory phase to an absorptive phase. So eventually feeding the patient will reduce its output. Perfect. So, we decide to feed the patient. Let's talk about which formula or milk we should use. Often those kids, you're going to start with a known volume directly fed into the stomach, usually by a tube or a G-tube. And the formula, essentially, that we like to use is mom's breast milk. Mom's breast milk is ideal not just because of the nutrition value, but certainly because it has all the immunomodulatory beneficial effects, growth healing effects 
that are not present in typical formulas. And if we don't have breast milk? In the absence of that, donor breast milk is something we're fortunate to have access to at Cincinnati Children's is, in, is our second choice for sure. Awesome. But we have to know that breast milk has lower protein levels that we want. So probably we have to supplement it. And if no breast milk is available, we have other options. A lot of people will use specialized formulas where the protein module is completely broken down or mostly broken down. So either free amino acids or hydrosylates. However, in the world of short bowel syndrome, protein absorption is actually fairly well preserved. So it, it seems like the benefit is from an allergy perspective. Okay, so for formulas, breakdown proteins reduces the rates of allergy. But what about fat? Over the last several years, a lot of the formulas have moved from predominant long-chain fat to increasing in MCT components. But long-chain fat is a stronger driver for adaptation, and I personally haven't really bought into that. And the benefits of long-chain fatty acid also have a lot of the, the developmental and immune properties, too. So formulas have higher levels of MCT. That, that's not always beneficial. Remember that long-chain fat are important to give a good nutrition to our patients. So be aware of that when you decide which formula you're using. Now it's time to move on and talk about volume. It's a common mistake to increase enteral feeds by X volume that you decrease TPN by. And what you end up doing is you're assuming that the child can absorb all those calories and you end up stunting the growth. You're right. And they're not isocaloric. And so one mil of PN is not one mil of formula. So if you keep going beyond 100 per kilo or 120 per kilo, you, you have a problem. And kids, not only will they take a calorie protein hit, they'll take, you start to get into problems with sodium and calcium as well, because the composition in the milk is not the same as what's in the parental solution. So you, at some point you do have to fortify. I really think multidisciplinary approaches, as we've said all along, are needed in these kids. Yes. We always highlight the importance of a multidisciplinary team, and today is not the exception. If the child isn't having issues with the lung and stuff, sometimes the right move is to expand the total volume that's allowed to be given a day from 140 to 160, 70, even 180 occasionally per kilo if they're tolerated. Okay, so very important fact. If the child has a sick intestine, they won't absorb all the calories that we give them. So to wean out of TPN, we have to make sure that we are given enough calories to achieve healthy growing. Excellent. Now let's move on to how to feed. So basically we have bolus, which can be either oral or gastric bolus system with tube, or we have continuous through a post-pyloric tube, you know, or a surgical JD tube, for instance, something like that. Or then there's a hybrid model where there's some sort of gastric component, whether it be oral or bolus through a tube with with a continuous component, whether that's gastric or post-pyloric. Okay, to repeat, we have bolus or continuous. Then it could be by mouth or tube. And the tube can be a nasogastric tube, a D-tube, or a post-pyloric feeding. 
If we have all the options available, which one is the preferred one? As I like bolus feeds as a default, I'd like I like to see a patient fail bolus feeds before they end up on continuous feeds as a sole delivery mode, unless we're using continuous feeds as a supplemental approach. So they get some bolus feeds, then we're supplementing our patient overnight with some kind of continuous component. So start with bolus feeds, it fails, jump into continuous. If it didn't fail but wasn't enough, we can complement it with a night continuous feed, for example. One thing I just want to say about oral feeding is that even in the scenario where it's really non-nutritive, I think it's important for people to sort of look at that oral feeding, not so much as a enteral nutrition perspective, but more of a skill development perspective. If they never learn how to eat by mouth and suck and swallow and process, then they won't eat solids later when you want them to. And you're stuck basically with tube feeding on an older child. Perfect. No taken. Developing eating skills is really important for the future. So even when this is not the most nutritive feeding, try to do it to avoid oral aversion. Now that we cover how to feed, let's jump to patients with gastric emptying problems. By far the most complicated part of our GI tract is the stomach because it, it does both the back and forth uh, sloshing around that the small bowel does, but in addition, it has to coordinate a squeeze with the relaxation of the pylorus several times a minute to induce small amounts of gastric empty. And so it's not uncommon that when children haven't been fed and they've had an injury, the coordination of the stomach is completely off. So after an intestinal injury with gastric dysmotility, what should we do? Most of this requires just time and stimulation. And so the way to to buy that time when the rest of the GI tract works is to place a tube beyond the stomach that you can feed from. In a baby, uh, the, the best way to get distal feeding is either through an NJ tube um, with the G tube just decompressing the stomach so that the baby's allowed to be fed outside the stomach while decompressing the stomach at the same time. And that what ends up happening is that the feeding that you do stimulates the distal small bowel and the colon to produce hormones that largely will tell the stomach to start functioning and you'll actually break the, the cycle. Awesome. To help the stomach's motility, we need to decompress it and at the same time try to give the patient post-pyloric feedings. Time to talk about refeeding. Um, that could be done as a bolus. It can also be done over a pump. I prefer it being as a bolus, but the nurses have found at Cincinnati running it over a pump for an hour works well. And we have that protocol and typically start at five and then 10 cc's per kilo and then moves up accordingly based on the fact that the baby's tolerating it. Interestingly, by feeding the colon, one of the things you'll notice quickly is that the output from the stoma actually goes down, speaking to all the hormonal effects of the distal bowel, and often the stomach will start to work. Okay, so that is a really interesting and important concept. The refeeding on the distal part of the intestine will stimulate the proximal portion to absorb more. And I think the largest benefit, obviously, is when you hook the, th the two ends up, the distal bowel has been functionally used. 
And so the time to be able to start feeding in the course post-operatively, I think is made much easier. Yeah, and it, it's, it goes to the point that we've made in a previous podcast about having a plan and, and resisting the temptation to get it all done in one operation. It's all about optimizing the patient for the next step, but you don't have to do it all in one go. I mean, just the pure technical benefit when you go to hook up that bowel later that's been distally fed, the size discrepancy is, has been improved significantly because that bowel's been used. Great. Two benefits in one. But what about refeeding formula? I think undigested formula in the colon is a trigger. It definitely can cause stress to the bowel. And so I'm not sure it's the healthiest thing to do. Awesome. So let's talk about a D-tube. Do all of these patients need one? The strategy that I've used that I think works very well is that you're not committing the child to a lifelong G-tube or even for the first year. If you just place a feeding tube into the stomach and stand the stomach up, it's no different than another tube in a kid. And especially, as I said before, I often direct it out of the pylorus into the proximal small bowel. And so it's a source of feeding that allows you to overcome some obstacles that you can never always predict. And, and when these children do well, you just take it out. And it's like any other hole that just heals in these kids. Definitely point taken. The easiness of placing a D-tube at the time of the surgery that they may need, it is way better than doing it in a reoperation. And the downside of taking it out later when you're done with it or don't need it anymore, as you said, the hole just closes very quickly. It gives you so much more versatility from a nutrition supplementation perspective, medication delivery, even venting the, the kid that happens to be a bit gassy or bloated to allow them to have better enteral tolerance. So it's it's an ace in the hole. Because the morbidity from that tube is extremely low and the benefit could be very, very. Awesome. So it's time to summarize. Refeeding a neonatal patient is important not only because of the intestinal function, but also because it's social aspects. And as we always say, to achieve this, a multidisciplinary team is needed because refeeding the correct way will lead to a healthy growing. And that's what we always want. To start, remember that at first, patients will probably increase their stomach or stooling output, and that is completely normal. Because when the intestine is damaged, the first phase is the secretory phase. And feeding it will help with the healing to go into the absorptive phase. The best option to start refeeding would be breast milk, followed by donor breast milk. And if neither is available, many formulas can be used. The way of feeding can be bolus or continuous, and by mouth or a tube. The preferred way is bolus, and if they can, by mouth. Regarding intestinal motility, one of the most affected organs in the gastrointestinal tract is the stomach, due to its very complex movement. A way to improve the stomach motility is to decompress the stomach and at the same time give postpyloric feeding. Lastly, refeeding to the distal colon can help to improve the absorptive part of the proximal bowel by hormonal secretion. Awesome! So that was all for today about how to refeed a neonatal patient with intestinal failure. If you like it, leave us a rating on a review. Follow us on social media and our YouTube channel. Download the Stay Current app in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store, where you can find 
this podcast, and a lot more. But until then, I'm Cecilia Higena from Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and along with Stay Current, we are sharing knowledge to improve child health around the globe.